And now, ladies and gentlemen, Kawhi. Welcome back to YBR Presents, a look into the different trends and glory of cinema's past, whether it be through directors or in the case of this particular series, a trend of a genre from another country. And we are still here in Japan covering the horror genre. Now, when we last left you, we were dealing with a kind of a mix of horror and drama all over the place, mindfuck of a scenario. But now we are kind of easing in to a more noticeable, recognizable form of the horror genre. I speak, of course, of sci-fi horror. And Japanese cinema was more than willing to step up to this challenge eventually, as we're going to find out in the history of today's selections, The Invisible Man Appears and The Invisible Man versus The Human Fly. We are going to find that the road to horror film, let alone special effects photography in Japanese cinema, was a long-fought battle with one of its supreme figures in film history, E.G. Tsuburaya. But I cannot do this alone. I'll never want to do this alone. So with me today is our international correspondent of world renown, Rashmi Manan. Delighted to be here, Zach. Welcome back. So we are we are still here in Japan. We are still covering the horror genre and we, you, so this is for for behind the scenes for folks here. Uh, this the, the with Rashmi pitching this project, she curated a good chunk of this list, and and or at the very least threw out titles and 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 wondered what would stick with me as something to talk about. And when I see the words "invisible" and "man," my my brain goes into uh, a fiery mode of we have to talk about an invisible man movie. Because, as Ballyhoo audiences will know, I am a huge fan of 1933's The Invisible Man, directed by James Whale. Um, Now, I love exploring the genre of The Invisible Man because out of all the special effects-driven fare that cinema has to offer, whether it's horror or not, Invisible Man movies, especially pre-CGI era, always fascinate me because it it is a situation where... You do not have the luxury of a computer. You are relying on physical elements to create your effect. Physical elements and trick photography that combines technology but does not rely on ones and zeros to achieve its goal. Um, And Rashmi, I I, I wanted to know before we dive into our more historic uh, context portions and the plot breakdown, how did you first find out about this film? Because there's an interesting story behind how we're able to even talk about this film period 
Yeah, I want to throw out a thanks once again to one of my favorite Asian film podcasts, the Asian Cinema Film Club. Uh, they were thank I thank I thank them also because they were the first ones to let me come on a podcast. So I'm very thankful to them for that. But they also found this movie because they're big fans of Arrow films. I think one of them has the uh, one of the podcasters has Arrow films. There's an Arrow films channel in the in the UK where they are. So they see these things popping up on their channel, and they saw this. Uh, and yes, it's very interesting because this film. You know, while I love to talk about how Japanese film influenced other film that came on later on, I can't really make that argument for this film because for the most part, uh, it didn't get a U.S. release until the early 2000s, yeah. uh, even though the film came out in 1949 in Japan. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, I thank that podcast for kind of putting this on my radar and, um, and Arrow Films for bringing us some of these kind of lesser known gems that have gone lost with time. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Arrow Films is a, uh, is a is a big hero in this story. In fact, it was actually interesting because rarely do I in podcasting come across a film that is is more or less recently available. Period. Um, generally, with a Golden Age Hollywood film or an early cinema film, there's a way to find it, whether it's on YouTube or if it's on a streaming service or buying physical media. This is a case where now it is available, but there was a period where it had no, we, we had no, uh, a context for its existence. And in fact, the arrow feature by Kim Newman, it, it, it almost uh, like when it, when you're listening to his dissection of the invisible man genre at large, and it was recorded, not too long after Lee Wanall's The Invisible Man was released in the States, there is a interesting element of like, he is kind of learning as he goes along with this because this film wasn't readily available outside of its country of origin. Uh, what's more, like it's an interesting in in situation where this film probably wasn't as regarded uh, as other films coming out of the country because the only elements available are a 16 millimeter copy of each film and arrow makes that a disclaimer in their disc of like there are certain elements that are just unfixable and rather than compromise the image we have to present it as it is with with minimal interference and so like we are treated to like a, a rare find as a result but i will say that even though the quality of the print may not be a 35 negative or anything like that it looks amazing for mm -hmm. what it is, for what we are given. And it gives, I think, a great uh, entry point now for people who are interested in the main subject of this piece, which is Eiji Tsuburaya. Um, uh, he is, for the audience at home, he is the father of tokusatsu, uh, which is special photograph in Japanese, as Rashmi was telling me earlier. Um, and this is the guy who you would primarily know for creating the magic that would make Godzilla the exist uh, the the magical piece that it is today. But he had, he, Rashmi, he had quite a journey <laughs> to he getting did. to this so, point. Yeah, absolutely. So if you don't mind, Zach, I'd love to set a little historical context, and Please. that connects so well with his yeah. story. Um, so first of all, you know, eagle-eyed listeners or eagle-eared listeners, I guess, will notice that we've made a big jump here from 1929 to 1949. And when Zach and I were originally planning this series, we thought, oh, well, we want to have a movie in the 30s and, you know, one in the 40s. And we kind of wanted one for every decade. And I think your description of the heroic efforts to kind of restore this film are 
kind of indicative of what we face, which is, mm -hmm. you know, film preservation efforts in, at times have been a little bit limited. So we've lost a lot of films from the 30s. Uh, in addition, unfortunately, the 1930s were a period of fascism and war in, mm -hmm. in Japan. Yep. You know, really, World War II started actually probably more accurately in 1937 when Japan uh, took over much of China. Um, and so, you know, we, we don't have much that's available. Even if it is available, it may not be available in the West. And then the things which are available are limited because once you have a militaristic government in wartime, there's a lot of censorship and control of what kind of movies can be made. Yeah. Um, so that's why we kind of have a gap there in the 30s before we return again post-war. Um, but yeah, to just set a little bit of the table of kind of where we are. So this film came out in 1949. And so that puts it kind of equidistant from the end of the war and the atom bomb, which was 1945. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, Godzilla, which you referred to, which was 50, 1954. Yeah. And so this is kind of in that that middle period there. And in particular, I think something that's important to call out. So, so first of all, just in terms of the lives of people, right? Things are still pretty tough in Japan. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about this film is it's kind of a time capsule of the area era of like, what did Kobe look like in 1949? And you'll notice there aren't too many skyscrapers. You know, things are still pretty basic. Mm -hmm. um, the country is still continuing to rebuild from the war. It hasn't really hit its big growth period yet. Um, coming out of a time of obviously deprivation and starvation and all the buildings being bombed and kind of a obviously a, a, a difficult period to come through and things things are just starting to get better in this 1949 era. Mm -hmm. And what's important to remember is that up until 1952, Japan was still being ruled by the U.S. military. <laughs> so good old Douglas MacArthur and his cronies essentially got to run this country mm -hmm. uh, from 1945 to 1952 or so. And 1952 is when the government was officially turned over back to Japanese authorities. And so what that means is if you're making a film in 1949... Guess what? The U.S. not all you know the U.S. military authorities essentially have to approve your film for it to come out, right? So um, that's kind of just an interesting thing to think about when we look at some of these films and what they say. I think, in particular, I'd like to call out that Godzilla is a film that is, of course, extremely critical of. Uh, the U.S.'s atomic efforts, and particularly at that certain point, atomic testing that it was conducting. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, the beginning of Godzilla refers to an actual historical event. Um, but, you know, this film doesn't have any of that, right? Because no. you're not really at a point where films can be critical of the U.S. because the U.S. is still running the country. Yeah. So that's something to keep in mind. Now, let me tee you up uh, for I know what you want to talk about, uh, Zach. One of the people who got caught up in all of that is Eiji Tsuburaya. So Eiji mm -hmm. Tsuburaya, who is someone who is extremely interested. You know, he has kind of a Spielberg kind of story in that he went <laughs> to see a movie about a volcano when he was a kid and fell in love with special effects and was coming home and trying to recreate all these things. Mm -hmm. um, well, somewhere along wartime, and I know you'll dig into this in more detail, but in wartime, he did participate in making propaganda films, as many people participated in. Because yeah. Those are the films that were getting made. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, he was banned uh, from being able to participate in the film industry, at least during the time of the occupation. Now, he cleverly got around that by just having his son start a consulting company, quote unquote, that did special effects. And he was able to work through that company, basically. Right. Um, but until 1952, he's pretty much off book. Um, and, you know, I, I think you may be digging into this more, but there may be a, may have been some misunderstandings as to how much actual uh, 
participation Subaraya had, knowledge Subaraya had, and you know, I'll contribute more to that as you talk or you'll talk about it. But, uh, but yeah, let's let's talk about AG a little bit because he's obviously one of the most important figures to 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 make this movie interesting. Uh, and one quick note is that Page of Madness, which we just covered, mm -hmm. was kind of his big breakthrough movie where he got to be kind of participate in the cinematography, uh, which makes me think now again about some of those kind of montages we saw in that film, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, and you have to think that he probably had some some hand in making those. So, he, he, um, he's a camera operator first yes. and foremost, although it's it's even more it's even more interwoven than that. And what I what I learned from what you what you think that EG's story is it ends up becoming far more in keeping with somebody who goes to film school where you take on every hat now when you go to film school you you learn you you obviously go for whatever emphasis you are if you want to be a cinematographer you 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 focus heavily on your camera but you do but you do not just relegate yourself to one department you kind of do everything and eg superaya is somebody who worked his way through different departments before he landed into the department that would define his legacy. Um, now, for for uh, for people out there, uh, the sources that were tagged, the unfortunate part of uh, E.G. Subaraya's story is that there is a book, a really well-put-together book um, by August Rigoni called E.G. Subaraya, Master of Monsters. However, it is out of print, and copies of it are rather expensive. But there were previews available uh, through Google Books that allowed me to kind of gather this but if you want to support this author go pick up that book because i certainly am going to now just for the sake of wanting to learn more uh, we also have an article from cinematographer magazine um Jap uh, it's called japan's master of monsters by clifford v harrington uh this is from uh from uh the 50s 60s i believe um and there is also some added elements from uh david callett's uh commentary for gojira on the criterion collection and there's some uh, confirmed slash unconfirmed sources from books that are only in Japanese when citing some of this research. Easy Superbaya's World of Tokusatsu and complete collection of Japanese special effects and fantasy movies. Um, so, and those are uh, written by Takisha Matsuda. But again, since they're in Japanese, there is no firm verification. So you'll have to bear with that situation. Now, having said all that, Easy Superbaya. Begins life not initially wanting to do film. He's born in July 7th, 1901. Uh, and he has dreams of attending the Nippon Flying School. But those are dashed pretty quickly when a fatal accident involving the founder shut down the school. <laughs> so already he's like, well, shit. So he finds his way into night school at the Kanda Denki School, which is now the Tokyo Denki University. Uh, and the, um, the Subaraya Studios company... Uh, website states that he worked in R&D at a toy company. Um, and Matsuda's book claims that he his work at Yitsumi, uh, that toy company, uh, devised the first battery-powered phone capable of making calls, an automatic speed photo box, an automatic skate, and a toy phone. And apparently that toy phone won him a 500 yen patent. So um, 
the, this... yes, he had that inventor tinkerer side to him very mm-hmm. much so. And I think, you know, he, he invented like cinematic cranes, all these kind of gadgets. He likes inventing oh, gadgets. We'll get to that here in a second. So <laughs> he, he does have a chance meeting with Yoshira Enemasa, um, which uh, puts him in 1919 on the path to uh, filmmaking when he accepts a position from Yoshira at the Natural Color Motion Picture Company, or Tenkatsu. Um as Adamasa's camera assistant. He works on films initially like A Tune of Pity and Tombs of the Island. Um, the August 1960 ASC article claims that he began his career as a scenario writer and was later employed in the studio laboratory. So it seems like there's like a confluence. It's One thing's for sure, he is working under the auspices of filmmaking in mm-hmm. the capacity of a multi-purpose tool which is yep. i'm going to do anything i can to help get the production done period um mm-hmm. now he uses that as a stepping stone and he graduates to the camera uh, uh camera department where he works for 15 years ragoni's book uh states on page 21 that because he was not as cosmopolitan the the urban colleague super uh, uh super had around him um, made him the brunt of bumpkin jokes. He is from <laughs> Sukagawa, Fukushima. Uh, so they, uh, but he would simply ignore this this beratement and keep working. And he continues under Edamasa after Tenkatsu is is absorbed absorbed by the Kotokusatsu company. But his film career is interrupted. Uh, from 1921 to the end of 1922 for mandatory service in the Japanese Imperial Army. It's six-month compulsory service is what I was learning. Um, the context behind that, Rosh, if I'm correct, is that Japanese serv- like service in the military is a requirement in Jap- it w- was a requirement in Japanese culture at that point. Um, I could be wrong, but... Um, yeah, he, I think so. I mean, there yeah. had been a strong militaristic bent to the country for some time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, when we look at what happened in the 30s and 40s, it's kind of not a surprise that we got there. So. Yeah. Now, following service and brief stops at home, his film career resumes. In fact, he left a note behind for his family that Rigoni quotes <laughs> yeah. in his book. I won't return home until I succeed in the motion picture business, even if I die trying, which is... <laughs> that's a statement you can make in your 20s, I, I guess. love that note. Yeah. I mean, it's just like we had in the previous movie, right? It, it is like that running off to join a circus. Like, you just feel compelled. I'm going to go do this. I don't care. Nothing's going to stop me. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, he does go to work in 1924 for Kokotatsu as a chief cameraman. His career in the camera department does further with work on such films as The Hunchback of Anaminen Temple, I think. I got that right. If not, I'm sorry. Um, uh, Mad Blade Under the Moon and 1926's Page of Madness. Um, for the context of that, he's invited by Koei Sugiyama to join the Kingugasa group for Ma- for Page of Madness. Um, he uh, Kingugasa ended up being folded into Shakaku, uh, Shokoku, uh, Kyo- Shotoku. Yep. Shotoku, Kyoto. Mm-hmm. Shimokamo Studios, and E.G. photographed 11 films for them and began to write essays for their official publication. Um, And uh, there is a uh, uh, there is a breaking point for Subaraya where he starts to develop some interesting technology. So uh, this is where we get the crane story, which I I, I really... (laughs) I genuinely love the love this story to a team. This 
This story reminds me of a Buster Keaton movie. So just in your mind, yeah. imagine Buster Keaton playing this role. And then, you know, Jake, Zach, you could tell the story. Yeah. So there's a crane used in the 1916 film Intolerance that he kind of basically says, I want to make a smaller version of it, um, what could be, uh, which could be used in both the studio and outdoors um, that would increase camera movement for greater dynamic impact. So without blueprints uh, and technical manuals, he just designed this from scratch uh, made from wood that would later develop into an iron version. And it was an adaptation that we would use around the world to this very day. Uh, this is insane to just say like, well, I don't have the instruction manual, so I'm just going to assume I know how to make it <laughs> uh, with like, <laughs> like, do I have a picture of it? Okay. And maybe I can kind of go off of that. Um, and going forward, he works on a lot of period dramas and adventure films. Uh, and in 1933, though, he gets a little glimpse at a movie called King Kong. Uh, David Callett uh, emphasizes this heavily in his commentary for Godzilla that King Kong is the breaking point for uh, Subaraya because he wondered, like many people did, which is how the fuck did they do King Kong? How did they do it? Now, I'm sure you're a rare Rashmi that when King Kong was made, that special effects department run by Willis O'Brien and probably RKO to a big extent was not about to give out the secret as to how King Kong's visual effects were achieved. It was stop You mean motion. there wasn't a big gorilla climbing up the Empire State Building? Come no, on. it's a puppet. It's a it's an eight foot puppet. It's not an eight foot puppet. It's like a two or three foot puppet. That's all it is. It's all it is. It's mag It's movie magic or D in this case nowadays digital effects. Um, but uh, he. Uh, yeah, there the the publications going out for King Kong at this time, and this is sort of wraps around the contextuality of it, is RKO did release publicity material about like how they made King Kong, but they kept giving out false stories. There are photographs and dioramas that display the idea of there's a man in a very elaborate gorilla suit, or there's some kind of like magic that's involved in creating these special effects, and it's like, no, this is not the case. This is not what happened. Um, so they were just basically holding on to the trade secret, essentially. Um, mm -hmm. So Subaraya does not know how they actually do it, so he gets a print of it via his connections in the film industry, and just began to dissect it frame by frame by frame. Um, and then there's an interview in uh, the Manichi News in 1962 where he says, King Kong is a tremendous hit all over the world, including Japan, and turned RKO pictures from a second grade, some company first rate one, <laughs> uh, second grade company, um, into a first rate one. I tried to persuade the studio I was working for uh, to import this technical know-how, but they had very little interest in it because at the time I was near the cameraman who worked at Kazoo, uh, who worked on Kazuo Hasegawa's historical dramas. So they're not taking him seriously because he literally just works on period dramas that have nothing to do with trick photography. Um, but he was known as a guy who would achieve anything to make the shot look interesting he did so on page of madness and other people would cite him as somebody who would like fill the whole area with smoke if it made the frame more compelling um mm -hmm. so th there's another aspect of this too special effects photography in japanese cinema does have a king kong connection in direct uh tandem because there were two different King Kong movies made in Japan as a response. One is 
Wasai Kingu Kongu, uh, which is a 1933 silent film uh, that was that is now lost. It was a silent three reel comedy short, and from the photographs, it does look like it's just a guy in a suit. Um, but unlike what you would find with Godzilla, this looks like the most undynamic suit imaginable. Um, and then there is another one called The King Kong that appeared in Ito. Uh, again, another lost film. Um, but it was it's described under the idea of a period drama or a jidakeki. Jidaigeki. Yeah, Edo is the old name for Tokyo. So historical Tokyo is Edo. Yeah. So that's what they're talking about, King Kong in, in olden days Tokyo. Yeah, and this also did have a suit. Um, uh, it was created and then performed in by... Rinosuke Kabayama, um, who later changed his name to Fuminori Oashi, um, and made the ape creatures sing in uh, uh, in a 1956 film, Mito Komon. Um, and he also worked on the suit for Godzilla in 1954. So... There are attempts at this, but they are not sincere attempts. They are they seem to be more or less catching on to a popular craze for a moment. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so unfortunately, E.G. Superaya is not in the capacity of having worked on those films. However, nevertheless, he is granted permission in December of 1933 to work on screen projection technology so as to work with the concept of location plates. So that's a step. Um, but there was a kind of overall sense that from what David Collett kind of like uh, intimates and August Rigoni does in an interview with Kaiju Cast, is that like special effects photography was almost seen as kind of like cheating or lying uh, by some of the film industry at the time. <laughs> so uh, they were just like, we're, we're not interested in cheating the audience and, and, and lying to the audience. So it's like, well, the, the whole freaking medium is a lie. So it's kind of irrelevant, but okay, fine. Fair enough. Um, his prototype crane, though, comes back to a successful forefront in 1934 when they complete an iron model of it and use it to shoot the choirs of a million. Um, and now, after returning from a multi-country excursion f- that was his directorial debut, a propaganda documentary called 3,000 Miles Across the Equator, he receives his first ever special effects work on a film for Princess Kayu. Kaguya. Uh, on that film, he works with animator Kenzo Masaoka to design and uh, utilize miniatures, puppets, and a composite shot of Kaguya emerging from a cut bamboo plant and a ship in a storm sequence. So he, he starts getting his legs a little bit. Um, but as the war uh, emanates, his special effects photography gets used towards... Um, rather propagandistic means uh and it's not just propaganda it might be the big propaganda story coming out of japanese cinema because there is a film in which he utilized his miniature special effects know-how to create a sequence uh dramatizing the bombing of pearl harbor and yes there is and this is actually yeah this was so this looked so accurate that the u.s government thought that he must have been a spy with special kind of classified sources in order to make this, which is part of the reason he got hit with that big ban at right. the end of the war. Which, like, that's how good this film is. It's used in documentaries now. Yeah, and to clarify that reality, it's not that he would have been a spy. It's right. that the people who did spy and the right. government handed him the photographs right. of the harbor and 
said, here, work with this. Right. <laughs> and yeah. as a result, yes, following the war, he is blacklisted by the Japanese film industry. And it's the U.S. government. And the U.S. government, that makes yes. that happen. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah sorry. Yes. Um, so, yeah, the U.S. government blacklists him, essentially. That's However, right. as Rashmi pointed out, it gets around this. <laughs> you can't keep a good E.G. Subaraya down. Uh, and uh, within this story also sees the rise of Daie Studios. Um, yes. Daie Studios. Welcome, Daie. We haven't talked about Daie yet. Yeah. So yeah. Daie is oh, one of the... Or a big five, or as yeah. I or as I call it, the home of Gamera, friend to all children. Exactly. So, <laughs> Daie, Daie, if folks are interested, maybe familiarity with some other Japanese films. Daie is home to some of the highbrow. So they released um, Rashomon, and they released Ugetsu, which we may talk about later in this series. Uh, Mizoguchi did most of his films there, as well as Konichikawa, another kind of art, 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 cultural, artistic side director. Mm. And then you also have fun films like the Gamera films. So they have a little bit of everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, all those names uh, sound wonderful, but all I can think of is Gamera. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. Of course. Uh, this, is, this is what happens when you're an MST3K fan, guys. It's just Gamera <laughs> and nothing else. Now, Dae, though, was, film, uh, was formed under interesting auspices that have to do with the war. Um, so the context of it is that in 1941, the government was decreeing a consolidation of the all 10 major film companies into two. And uh, the, um, uh, the uh, I, I hope I get his name right, Masa, Masakashi Nagata, who was an executive at Shinko Kinema, uh, was against this plan and wanted to plan, uh, proposed an alternative plan that consolidated it into three rather than two. Uh, the Office of Public Information actually took this as a benefit because they realized that this third entity would not have a strong management to oppose government policy. So it sort of creates a semi-official government film arm. Uh, so the formation of the studio uh, comes from uh, – if I got this right, the formation of the studio comes with Nikatsu's arm of the investment being undervalued. Uh, because Nikatsu is part of this uh, formation, uh, and uh, uh, and the goddess arm in Shinko is seen as more valuable. So when the final formation happens, um, Nikatsu Studios is folded into it, but not the theater chain. So mm. Nikatsu would end up reforming in 1954 yes. to create films yeah. that we have talked about with exactly. Senji uh, S S uh, Suzuki. Suzuki. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they're kind of five big studios post-war, right? So mm -hmm. there's Toho, which we talked about because Kurosawa did a lot of his films at Toho. Yeah. And then we have Nikatsu, which exactly is where Seiji and Suzuki, a lot of good B, B films that we like now come out of Nikatsu. Mm -hmm. uh, and then Daie is another kind of highbrow, lowbrow. They have both, similar to Toho. And mm -hmm. then there's Shochuku, which we talked about, right, with uh, Page of Madness. And then there's Toei, which mm -hmm. we I don't think we've covered yet, but we may get to them later. Yeah, we probably will. The But Daie's ultimate formation is a folding of Nikatsu, Shinko, and Daito. Now it becomes this one arm. Now, mm -hmm. then comes a problem, because since they did not have the Nikatsu theater chain, which remained on its own, um, Toho and Shok Shokaku consumed the women's and urban markets. So the um, in an article from Daie, a history of the Greater Japan Motion Picture Company that was published in Japanese Fantasy Film Journal Number 12, states that 
Die was left with farmers and children as their audience. <laughs> and so the first few films in their history are box office yeah. flops. Yeah, um, that's kind of early on. I would say, you know, like we said, you know, when you get to kind of this period, the early 50s, they're really, I mean, they are the ones kind of building the Japanese film reputation abroad until Gojira hits and Toho kind of takes over. But, you know, when you're talking about Rashomon and Ugetsu were, you know, they were shown at Cannes. They were very popular films uh, yes. Well, relatively speaking, internationally. Yes. So. And there is a story in between that, which is at some point, Nagata, just after their first big hit, The New Snow, was arrested for the accusation of having bribed the Office of Information in order wow. to achieve this merger. He is Not released surprising. in he is released in 50 <laughs> days. And along that period, uh, that's when Rashomon comes into their uh, auspices and which Guliana Stromgoli got uh, got the film over to the Venice Film Festival and everything Correct. kind of exploded. This mm-hmm. company would also make its stride investing in Eastman Color um, mm-hmm. and sending cameramen to America to conduct tests. All of this mm-hmm. trust in the process led to Gates of Hell, the first color yes. J- uh, film in Japan to be released outside of the country. And I believe- Which Japan- was made by our friend- Kinugasa. Kinugasa, yeah. yes. Yeah. And also, I believe that is the first Japanese film to win Best International Film at the Oscars. At the time, it would have been oh, Best Foreign Language Film. I, th- I believe so. Um, hmm. So that all is to say that Daie is a studio that has to kind of climb its way up. Prior yes. to Rashomon, though, yes. they're working on a film like the Invisible Man appears. Right, right. And then right. even after the success abroad, they make a film no. like The Invisible Man versus The Human <laughs> Fly. Now, this is when we get into the specifics of An Invisible Man. It is pointed out by, I believe, Rigoni and David Collett that uh, he was not just inspired by King Kong. The Invisible Man from 1933 also had some form of influence on him. Now, for context... If you want more detailed information on this audience, I would encourage you to go to Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review, um, the episode regarding The Invisible Man from 1933, or look um, up the featurette, Now You See Me, uh, the making of The Invisible Man from Universal, hosted by Rudy Bellmer. Essentially, Subaraya is lifting the exact same process that John Fulton developed for The Invisible Man, involving black velvet technology and composite photography, uh, combining three different strips of film with black velvet utilized to achieve the look of the, of the Invisible Man and exposing the frames in certain areas to create the illusion of invisibility. The difference between what he does and what Fulton does really has to do with a country learning how to use this technology so many years after the fact. As a result, the invisible man effects, you can tell what is a process shot versus what is regular film, whereas Fulton's work was a little bit more seamless even in 1933. Um, Mm -hmm. Another thing that gets lifted from the American Invisible Man films, which Kim Newman alluded to, and I had to kind of have a realization of like, oh yeah, this is true. The Invisible Man Appears is not really a, a an Invisible Man movie per the 1933 one. It It's an f- invisibility film that's also a crime film in the process. And in fact, a lot of the sequels to The Invisible Man 
really step away from the whole mad scientist thing in favor of criminal on the run, person fighting for justice, or in the case of the invisible secret agent fighting Nazis um, or invisible agent. Sorry. So this is kind of a conglomeration of a ton of invisible man sequels combined with the technology of Fulton innovated by the first one. And Mm -hmm. it definitely shows, Mm -hmm. uh, I, 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 Rosh, I was, incredibly thrilled by the invisible man appears because it's kind of everything (laughs) it is and and i really give them credit i think for me the thing that was most exciting was just all the plot twists i think they do Mm. a really good job so invisibility on its own is not enough to carry a film by this point in time right it's been done like the first film was the one to do that we don't need to do that anymore there needs to be a story and this is very much a procedural trying to figure out not just who did it, but how do we get to them, right? Yeah. And um, I think this film does an amazing set of plot twists and turns to keep us interested in this story. I was, you know, when I was going to do a subsequent watch of this to take some notes, I thought, oh, well, I've seen it a bunch of times already. I can just do it at 2x speed or whatever. And I couldn't because I just got sucked in. Yeah. The film. It's, <laughs> it's, it's funny. The first time I watched it, my brain was in a nowadays very rare mode where I watched it and I'm like, I think I can just remember this off of the top of my head. But leading up to this discussion, I was like, no, what? No, I need to take at least a couple of detailed notes for the first good chunk of this movie, mostly for characters because characters pop in and out of this thing like whack-a-mole. It is, (laughs) it is insane how many people are involved in this plot. It is insane that they take the twists that they do. And it is insane how amazingly, admirable and hilarious the melodrama is and it is not a denigration to the material it's just that there are (laughs) there are acting choices in this film from blocking not from dialogue but from blocking that recall an snl sketch where somebody makes fun of a soap opera (laughs) and they do like a turn to the camera or something like that or look away in horror um, there is, but there is, there's a melodrama. I, yeah. since you mentioned plethora of characters, I just wanted to call out one other person. Mm. Uh, I think we've, we've done good homage to AG today and we'll talk about him more in our next film as well, but I wanted to call out. So there is the sister, right? The sister of the invisible man who is an actress, right? Yes. Um, you may recall her from the film. So her, her name as a, as a real person, uh, the actress's name is Takiko Mizunoe. And why I wanted to call her out, you may have noticed in the film that she is always wearing pants and she has a very short haircut. And in the kind of variety show that we see, she's actually dancing with a woman. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, "Hmm, what's going on here? So I just wanted to call out a little bit about her. So she was famous. Last film, we talked about the long theatrical tradition in Japan of onnagata, right? Which is men dressing as women and playing the women roles. Yes. So very Recently, right before this movie, in the 1910s, 20s, 30s, during that era, there was a kind of thing called otokoyaku. And otokoyaku was the opposite. It is women essentially playing male roles and dressing and styling themselves as men. And that that thing, it's kind of a funny story. That was originally designed as a marketing gimmick, because of course, all good ideas come from marketing gimmicks, right? We know that. Yes. Uh, there was a gentleman who ran a railway company and he wanted to promote a new ro- new um, new route from Osaka to Takarazuka or something like that. And yeah. he, call- he made this variety show, a musical variety show 
uh, called like the Takarazuka Follies or something like that. And mm-hmm. she was a member of that. And the way he was trying to get buzz for this show is that all the parts were played by women, including some women who were styled to look like men. And Taka- Takiko Mizune, Mizunoe was one of those people. And somewhere um, and, and somewhere out there in the distance, you can hear Ron DeSantis having a stroke from exactly, all of this information. Exactly. <laughs> so she continued to play those roles. And in fact, even when she appeared in public, she would kind of do that. Now, I don't know. I couldn't find enough about her personal life to understand, you know, was she trans? Was she a lesbian? I have no idea. There's no confirmation one way or another. What I was able to learn is she was never married. Mm-hmm. Um, she, there was some controversy around her. She had a quote unquote nephew who actually the nephew happened to murder his was accused of murdering his wife. And there was a murder trial. And in that trial, there were some uh, kind of allegations that perhaps he wasn't the nephew, that he was actually the son of this woman. None of that was ever really substantiated, although it was somewhat of a scandal. But I also want to ce- just celebrate her professional achievements, which is that she became the first woman who was a film producer in mm-hmm. Japan. Yeah. And not only that, she actually really launched, a, she she produced a film called Crazed Fruit. It's a weird title for what it is. The, the movie is actually about two brothers kind of fighting over the romantic attention of the same woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, why it's called Crazed Fruit is a little, I don't know. Anyway, but this film was so successful that it launched a whole genre of films called Sun Tribe films. I don't know if we'll ever cover one of them, but in any case, these were films kind of similar as you saw in the late 50s, early 60s happening in the U.S. where youth culture was on the rise. And so there were all these films that were starting to be made about the dramas of teenagers and their lives. And yeah. that's what this film was. And so it was actually a huge hit, launched a whole genre. She was very successful as a, as a film producer, at least in this in this case. And so I just want to call that out about her. So I don't know the real details of her personal life. She did play these roles and she did tend to appear in public in a kind of more masculine look. Um, I don't know what she was personally, but she did have this successful film production career. So I just wanted to call her out briefly. I think uh, she was a member. I think similar to how um, Adam Roach has approached this with Cary Grant, like the, the details of the personal life don't necessarily matter in the context of what we'll discuss. However, in the case of her, it is interesting to note that, like she, her, that that because there is that potential, but also just in general of how she led her life, she definitely stands out from most yes. people in her community and her country as Correct. somebody who kind of picked her picked herself up and made her own story happen. This right. reminds me of how Ida Lupino kind of handled yes. her situation in America, yes. where yeah, she was just exactly. like, fuck this, I'm going to direct. Like, yeah, <laughs> she's a woman in a man's world. Yes. You know, yes. we don't know anything more about her personal life, so I'm not going to make any insinuations, but no. she yeah. was a woman in a man's world, and she definitely, while, as, while an actor, did play, that was what she played. She actually never really appeared in a female-looking Role. Mm-hmm. She played male looking role. If the, the only thing that I think you could like you could insinuate would be that, you know, like as much as she would dress up as a man, she took on the same gumption that would be applied right. to a male at that point to That's make right. her to make her success happen in her own way. Sadly, though, she did retreat from public life uh, yes, following that, that scandal. scandal with the nephew. Yes. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. but she did yeah. live up until 2009 at the age of 94. So she mm-hmm. she led a long, long life. Yeah, my yeah, hope very is, interesting woman. My hope is yeah. that she found some inner peace after that whole situation. Yeah, you know, like it's that. Unfortunate. Yeah, it's unfortunate. But yeah. we we have uh, we have 
we we're we're at the point now where we can start talking about the invisible man appears. There's, there's one more thing, yeah. oh. one more topic I want to cover, Zach, before we move on, and then I'll yes. be ready. Oh, of course, um, yes. So what I want to do, because I know I want to do this in all of our segments, is just to kind of connect some of the themes and 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 things that appear in the movie to things that we see in more modern horror. Right now, like I said, I'm not saying this is an influence. This film was not available to U.S. audiences until 2001. So I'm not making that. But it's more kind of commonalities and thought. Right. So there are two things I want to call out that I thought were interesting. Yes. One is the theme of business perverting science. Right. So we have this diamond thief who's trying to get this scientist who's really super excited about this invisibility and kind of, you know, brainwashing him or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> participate in his scheme yes and it's kind of this thought that like business will do anything with science right they don't care about what the costs are they don't care about the morality of it if there's science that will help someone make money a business person will figure out a way to do that and i think that's something that to be honest i don't see as much in the horror of this time when you look at like 30s universal valute movies even early science fiction i don't think really talked about that theme as much no. but you see a ton of it 70s 80s and onwards right mm -hmm. so alien jaws blade runner movie after movie right where like an evil company is going to use science to do terrible things because there's money in it halloween right? 3 season of the witch hey my favorite <laughs> halloween there you go you don't know um, very much about halloween do you you also don't know about invisible men appearing do you exactly <laughs> so Tom i Atkins. thought it was really interesting Really interesting that this movie kind of brings up this theme because I personally don't feel like I saw as much of this until later on. I didn't see as much of it. No, before. you don't. I and really I will say that too. Like what what I find interesting about this is that the the whole genre of tok tokusatsu is kind of being formed right here. Not not all the way, but this is like if we're talking about special effects photography as what we traditionally know uh, from our modern lexicon with event movies, superhero films, sci-fi epics, adventure films to some extent, uh, Lord of the Rings, maybe combining all of those things into one. It's interesting that it took this long to get to this point, but mm -hmm. I guess for the audience wondering why it would have taken this long, again... Japanese cinematic culture was not predicated right. upon this for success. Each right. country has a different emphasis that they were bringing to the table at this time. Britain was primarily notarized for kitchen sink dramas and and mystery suspense kind of films like Alfred Hitchcock was producing. In fact, he's basically bringing that genre to the forefront. Um, uh, you have uh, you have other films. Uh, from other countries that deal in different moods and styles. German expressionism is another key one. Each country had a different thing that they were known for and that was popular with the local audience at that point. There's no assumption that the whole Japanese audience in the 30s was wanting an Invisible Man movie or a King Kong movie. They would grab at an opportunity if they saw a way to cash in on it, like King Kong, but they weren't about to change their entire style for it. Um, the the tricks that we're talking about for the formation of tokusatsu, there are already tricks in pra in practice, but the problem is is that there there weren't they weren't used on mass. This includes rear projection, optical printing, miniatures, and the black velvet process, as previously discussed. Now, Superaya 
something that isn't fully applied in this film, but does end up becoming a part of the formation of Tokusatsu as we know it, mainly comes with his innovation of uh, the the use of suitmation, suitmation, <laughs> which is of course the art of dressing as Gojira and terrorizing Tokyo um, or Mothra or King Ghidorah, like whoever you want to throw into that mix, and superheroes in that fold, like Ultraman uh, and Ultra Q. So therefore, the what we know it to be in terms of Tokusatsu really comes formed after this film, but it actually yeah. encompasses a whole ton of stuff. Yeah, so, I mean, this film walked so those films could run. Exactly. Kind of ones, yes. Right? So, kind of yeah. like, kind of like how early CGI, like the Sherlock Holmes, young Sherlock Holmes's mirror sequence walked so that Lord of the Rings could run essentially exactly. or something like exactly. that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So one more theme I want to call out before we walk through the film. Uh, and this is um, this kind of concept of, it, it's kind of a little bit of a, it kind of messes with my mind a little bit to go into this. But the fact is when, you know, there's certain uh, times when invisibility is an advantage, but there are a lot of times when it's not. And mm -hmm. so we have that kind of, it comes from the 33 film, right? Of like, how does an invisible person become visible? And we have the look, right? With the bandages and the trench coat and the hat and the glasses and all that kind of stuff for an invisible man to become a visible man, yes. right? And that gets used to great advantage in this film because you have a lot of copies of the Invisible Man, right? You have people who are pretending to be the Invisible Man mm -hmm. by adopting that look, even though they aren't actually invisible. And so for me, that was kind of an interesting concept of like these copies you can make. They're infinite copies you can make of the original, but the copies are degraded. The copies are not as good as that original, right? The copies are not actually original. And so that reminded me of future films like Invasion of the Body Snatchers or The Prestige or something like that, where there are all these copies I can make, but the copies are not as good as the original. And it's, we see a lot of that. It's multiplicity syndrome. It's a, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That, which I didn't think I would connect multiplicity to Japanese yeah, cinema. Yeah, see, that's what's really cool, right? <laughs> yeah, the themes. So like I said, not influences, but themes that are kind of interesting and coming to the fore in this film that we then see many, many years later coming uh, being used a lot. It falls back on what we talked about with Page of Madness, where it's almost like an uncollective conscious or a, a, yes. a, a uncollective consciousness. Or, yes. or or um uh, or unconnected collective consciousness. I don't know what I'm yes. saying. You know what I'm getting at. Collective bottom, unconscious. Collective unconscious. There you go. The bottom line yeah. is is that these ideas are kind of coming at the same point, and I think yeah. that that attributes a lot to cinema being formed at this time. Everybody's asking the same questions yeah. out loud. Some people just get to it faster than others, and Hollywood had a more distinct advantage because of its ability to crank out and its more a vast amount of resources that ideas seem to form faster than other countries because mm -hmm. they have the resources in which to ponder that notion. Like mm -hmm. Dracula kicks off the horror craze for a lot of people. So then the natural follow-up is like, okay, well, what other books do we have? Oh, the invisible man. Well, how do we make an invisible man? And then that just gets the ball rolling for the mm -hmm. sake of making a profit, which, you know, again, Nothing wrong with the film business because sometimes that desire for money no, can lead to the innovation. I will say, having yeah. read the book for this movie, uh, the the movie is much better than the book. This, you know, it's happened twice now in the movies we've covered. Usually, the book is always better than the movie. This movie is much more interesting, engaging than the than the original book is. Oh so, yeah, H.G. Yeah. Wells is uh, racist. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's also an author that I find 
less interesting than the people who took his work and ran with it. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that book, the Invisible Man book, could have been set to Benny Hill music. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a farce. Very know? much it's- so. But uh, yeah, the I, I love that you point out that the those two thematic elements, specifically that first one, interests me because I get the feeling that there's a because of how even though Japan's limited in what they can actively talk about out loud with right. U.S. occupation, exactly they yes. get they get at other ideas that may not they even do. be on the minds. Yeah, I of, mean, you can replace yeah. businessman with people in power or mm-hmm. something like that, yeah. and there's how you get Hiroshima and Nagasaki, right? But, like even if you went to the trouble of building this bomb, which was basically inevitable ever since the concept of splitting the atom was invented. Uh, even if you go to a point of building the bomb, did you really have to drop it? And then when you dropped it, did you really have to drop it twice? Well, I don't know. <laughs> did you? Did, I mean, I, I I don't know. Let me ask Christopher Nolan. I don't know. You'll have to go to the IMAX. 70 millimeter IMAX. Studio. Well, I don't have the way to travel, Chris. And I'm not going to go to Texas to watch your movie. Um, I did see Oppenheimer, though. And despite the fact that it erasures some things, it's a pretty great yeah. movie. Um, uh, so... Uh, uh, but 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 going from Oppenheimer to to, to yeah. Subaraya. Yeah, so powers oh. <laughs> of powers that be using science in in an amoral or immoral way, right? Which is exactly what happened to Japan at the end of the war. And I think that the benefit of that is that it also innovates the idea of the, the evil corporate sleaze. <laughs> Is <laughs> in terms of a as a Saturday morning cartoon villain kind of thing, yes, like because yes, you yes. you see corporate corporate shenanigans in Golden Age Hollywood movies, they've been there. It's right. just that it they are not treated as <laughs> exactly. Villains, you know what I'm saying? Exactly. Yeah exactly. this this film has it in stride. Because very much so. Very Ka- much so. Kawabe uh, mm-hmm. is a skis ball. Of epic yeah. proportions here. He's, in absolutely. a lot of ways, he's my favorite character in the movie. Yes. Just yes, because absolutely. he is so fucking villainous. He's so evil. He's so yeah. evil. So let's jump into this plot, Rosh. Let's 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 get into the invisible man appears. So we're in yeah. yep, we got the crawl. Yes. We talk about the text, right? Yes, there is no good or evil in science. There you go. But it can be used for good or evil purposes, which really is a good allegory for what COVID ended up turning into on social media. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, this is what we just talked about, right? Yes, that exactly. science can be used for good and for evil. And once again, I do not think that is that is a not so subtle uh discussion of once again what japan just lived through with the uh atom bombs yes yes yes. so we got the classic classic sci-fi setup there and just a quick word we are in kobe Mm -hmm. kobe is an old port town near osaka osaka is kind of the second city of japan i don't know if there's stand-up comics there but it is the second city of japan it's after tokyo and so Kobe is the port next that that's kind of Osaka's port. So yes. it's very close to there and probably most well known for Americans as the place where there was a big earthquake uh, in recent memory. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, that's that's Kobe. And you'll notice, right? So Kobe is not as built up. It's definitely got the effects of the war, but it's also it's not Tokyo. And a lot of the movies we see are in Tokyo. This movie is not specifically not in Tokyo. So I just wanted to call that out. Correct. Yeah. Actually, I was actually kind of like I I was impressed to look at the imagery of it and how they were filming. It didn't feel nothing felt too dismantled. And I think that that's to the movie's advantage because it's not 
they're not specific. And I don't know if that's an edict within your imagery where you aren't really allowed to show the the bombed out effects uh-huh. of the war yet. But like, yeah. it, it is interesting to look at a residential like area of this nature where the, where the primary forces of the film take place. But mm-hmm. as we get later into the film, you will see portions of that. Whether it's in the town or if it's in the most incredible sequence of this movie, which we'll get to. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, we we are at the Nakazato ref- residence. Um, mm-hmm. it, it is the Nakazato Chemical Laboratory with mm-hmm. N- Dr. Kenzo Nakazato as mm-hmm. the acting director. And mm-hmm. our first scene is two nerds talking about invisibility. <laughs> right. And by the way, this setup is so similar to Godzilla, right? Because you yeah. have the older scientist with the two younger scientists learning from him in mm-hmm. his lab. And they're both also romantic rivals for the older scientist's daughter. So yeah. exactly like Godzilla, same exact setup. Yeah. Difference being they are very explicit with like, look, look, because Nakazato is listening to Seki and Kurokawa, Kurokawa Mm-hmm. blabbing on about like, well, I'm going to develop black paint for invisibility where I'm uh-huh. going to have things draw away from the light. And it's like, uh-huh. you know, and, and the, and the methodology of the invisibility, ladies and gentlemen, it's irrelevant. Like it's, it's, it's hand waving. Yeah, Absolute hand waving. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's all you need to know is that a serum is injected just like the invisible man and the invisibility happens. But Nakazato goes like, fellas, 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 I'll tell you what you both go out and develop your invisibility syndromes. And the winner gets to marry my daughter and i'm like say what now <laughs> it's so explicit it's not like a Kajura yes. kind of like alludes to this but it's not like it's not a central point in the movie because yep. we're talking about it's not uncommon <laughs> yeah. though right so a lot of times uh and i actually worked at a publishing company where you know they basically the guy who married into the family took over the family name of his wife to be able to then run this company. So it's not uncommon that like people marry into the family and then take over the family business. Right. Yeah. And, and, and like, and and it's, and and like at first my head was scratched at this, but then that they go over to the daughter, Machiko, Machiko, I think mm-hmm. that's how you pronounce her name, Machiko. 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 Mach- Machiko. Yeah. yeah. They yeah. go to Machiko and she's just like, yeah, both of them asked me at the same time and I turned them down. I'm like, what? Did you- okay, I guess you're on board with this. I don't know. Like, <laughs> Oh, sorry. It's Misako. 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 I'm sorry. I no, gotta, yeah. yeah, I had to look at my notes here. Yeah, Misako. Misako yeah. is her name. But yep. Misako, the daughter, yeah, she's like, yeah, they both asked me at the same time. So I'm like, I guess you're on board with this plan. I'm like, okay, fair enough. Like, I not me, not my job to judge. Um, and the younger sister who I don't think she has a name. I don't think she has any descriptive qualities other than to provide exposition. Yep, <laughs> um, pretty much. She's kind of just there. She even said she she literally sets it up with like, yeah, President Kawabe is here, and he's. Gonna I take think them that's to the... part of the reason she's there is because Kawabe can get through the family through her very easily, right? It's, because yeah. you know, buys them fun tickets to go do things, takes them in the, his fancy car, you mm-hmm. know, all this kind of stuff. I think that's the reason she's there. She's kind of easy to tempt. Yep, and they're about and. And he's um there uh, arrived there to take her uh, uh her and um uh Michiko to the review the R E V U E hey <laughs> woot 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 um and but Kawabe first chats with Nakazato and they're talking about the whole competition and Nakazato's like look here's the reality here I already have the invisibility set- ah! serum. 
<laughs> Aren't I a scheming little devil? Nobody's gonna marry my daughter. This competition is pointless now. Um, and uh, and uh, yeah, he uh, he he kind of allu- he, he kind of teases it, and then Kawabe just kind of goes like, "Fine, whatever. I'm not interested." But then Nakazato's like, "What? I've got to impress people," and so he goes to his sink and opens the cleverest secret door ever i love this because you'd think well maybe it's just a regular medicine cabinet but nope it requires you turning the sink in order to open it <laughs> and, and he- who who sees that happening ah kawabe what is he the villain what we might find out in a second because they pick out the invisibility potion and right away we get a special effects sequence of that of when he's pouring out the elixir and whatnot it starts smoking up and then it disappears into nothing and it's not as if like the smoke is dissipating it physically disappears and i actually love that transition it's like a keen little trick there um and he just he shows kawabe that the serum works by testing it out on a guinea pig and the the dissolve is kind of shaky when it goes to invisibility, but there is a cool yes. light flicker that happens beforehand that I was like, that's pretty cool. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's pretty neat to see that. Um, now, 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 Kazato does specify that there is no agent to restore a person back to visibility. Now, keep in mind, right. folks. Critical, yeah, keep that in mind for the future. Critical issue. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Kawabe wants the rights to the discovery, but he's like, no, 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 no. As any scientist in a movie will tell you that I must keep this out of hands, not meant to deal with it. It's mine and mine alone. And Kawabe's like, mm-hmm. okay, whatever, dog. I'm just going to go mm-hmm. ahead and take your daughter and your other daughter who is nondescript to this review. Yes. <laughs> and yes. they go to there uh and uh i'm sorry i know we're supposed to be talking about an invisible man movie but i'm also a sucker for review films a good review yeah a good review film or like a or or a good musical like a footlight parade or Uh 42nd street yeah Yeah. not enough of this review well okay (laughs) i'll call out the one thing that i think was interesting about this review you'll see that there's both western and eastern influence in what's presented and i definitely think that's a result of the occupation yeah because the montage of this review it does kind of give you the the broad points of any review within the span of maybe 20, 30 seconds. Because uh, it has this Eastern influence at the beginning. And in the very end, like yeah. they, they almost cut away immediately to the wedding yeah. sequence that exactly. happens in any musical. Correct. Yes. <laughs> and it's, mm-hmm. it's, yeah. it's great because when they dissolve into it, it's the whole chorus line and everybody's kind of dressed in either Eastern or Western garb. It doesn't matter. And I'm like, mm-hmm. this is what a review is. It doesn't matter. Just throw anything mm-hmm. onto the stage and hope people are applauding. Look, times are tough. It's just after war. People just want to get out of the house for some excuse. Come on. Like short of having the Japanese Jack Benny on stage, that like this is a pretty perfect like summary of a review. Like, there you that, go. Um, I mean, Kobe is not going to spring for the good stuff. Come on, he's evil. No, no, he's not. Although they do have an in with this review because Ryuko, mm-hmm. Ry- Ryuko Mizuki, mm-hmm. right, who is Kurakawa's sister, sister. What? Yep. Yep, uh, the she is the sister. she is mm-hmm. the star. So mm-hmm. they do arrange yeah. to all meet up later uh, at another day mm-hmm. at a. Yep. Uh, I think they're at a like some kind of a restaurant or like a tea shop or something like that. Like they're having tea, and. We see that she is, you know, she has her fans. She signs all the autographs for those fans there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they go to a jewelry store to all hang That's out. Right. And Kurokawa's there too. That's um, right. But 
as they're in the jewelry store, Kawabe spots uh, a couple trying to sell some jewelry, the Tears of Amour. Yes, yes. So Kawabe obviously is casing the jewelry store, Mm -hmm. and he's using the pretext of, oh, I want to buy you something as a pretext to go case the jewelry store and blend in better than mm-hmm. if he just went in as a single dude kind of staring at stuff. Great, um, great expressionist uh, montage and um, yes. um, overlay of the jewelry on him at one point, by the way. Very, very And I cool. also also want to call out, the once again, these are difficult times in Japan, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, money is tight. And so the fact that people would bring in like family heirlooms to sell that's probably par for the course. So I think that's an interesting plot point that's probably current for a lot of people watching this film. Which is why you see the couple right trying to get the price up. They exactly. they, they get offered five million yen and they're right. and later on they talk about like there's no reason we can't get seven million yen for this. So like right. even though they're going up on the price, they're not even wanting to go up that high in comparison. Um right. but this is Koabe's chance to steal these jewels. Um, mm-hmm. Or he, or a scheme is forming, mm-hmm. um, and so late night at Nakazato's laboratory, we see him taking an invisible cat out of a box. <laughs> and my first thought was, "There's an invisible cat in this movie." Yes, I loved it. Oh my god, this is awesome! Um, and th- there's a sequence with him in a second. But as that cat goes out the door, um, as we see, haha. Uh, two shady gents uh, in uh, black masks step into the laboratory and take him at yep. gunpoint. Um, yes, and can I just call out again? Guns are extremely rare in Japan. So first of all, you know, U.S. has a gun culture, right? It's the Wild West, Colt forty-five, whatever. What do you mean, Japan? Is, Japan is <laughs> Japan is samurai sword country, right? The traditional, mm-hmm. so, so it's knives and swords are traditional weapons. Guns are extremely uncommon, and you can imagine in an occupied country, of course, the U.S. government isn't going to let a lot of people run around with guns. Now, I will say that this time period is one where the, you know, kind of like the Roaring Twenties in the U.S., this is the time when the Yakuza really takes off in Japan Mm -hmm. because as a result of post-war deprivation, there are black markets to be had and therefore gangsters come in and take on a variety of rackets. And so they may have some guns, um, but for normal, average, everyday people, guns are extremely uncommon. In fact, even to this day, most police people in Japan don't carry guns. So then when, then a, a question that could be asked, maybe it doesn't matter, but like I wonder then, is the usage of guns, which obviously can allude to the, the rise of a, of a gangster culture in mm-hmm. Japan, mm-hmm. is it also maybe like, maybe it's not so much an imposition on the U.S. government's front, but like this film is carrying heavy influence from Western culture yes. at yes. large. So it's almost yes. like... The director, yes. the director of the film, who uh, no, Nobu Adachi, who I t- did not find much information on at all, other than a very limited filmography, uh, he. It's almost like maybe like the whole creative team is like, all right, well, we're, we're just let's just rip off the Invisible Man. What does an Invisible Man movie have that we've seen in Japan recently? Oh, there's gangsters yeah. with guns. So like, yeah, th- I think so. Yeah, I, you know, some. Some westernization in films was actually forced on them by the occupying uh, U.S. government. Uh, So, you know, there were weird things. They made rules like we want to see couples kiss in movies because that's more kind of westernized, you know, and and, and that's kind of a Japanese cultural thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so they would actually want that to happen. They would encourage that to happen. 
I don't know about the gun thing. I think it's probably unlikely they're going to say we Pro- want to see Probably guns not. But now I'm thinking but, about the offices, the office of kissing content and motion right. pictures in Japan. Yeah, Isn't that crazy? This doesn't they have enough kisses. That. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't have enough kissing. Go add some more. Yeah, this, this is a samurai movie with all males in there. I don't care. Make them kiss. <laughs> <laughs> We're American, which damn it. Si- which side of Ron DeSantis wins in that argument? None which of them. They all explode in a sea of flames. <laughs> Um, So, yes, I think you're absolutely right. The guns are just kind of another just sign of westernization and the kind of rising gangster culture. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, they um, as they are taking him at gunpoint and getting him into a car and driving him driving him off, um, uh, Michiko and uh, the Nagazato mother uh, again, no name. (laughs) I did not find a name. and the sister encounter an invisible cat that has already come into the scene, and yes. they and it, it is played out as a ghost yes. sequence. I love it. It, it is piano. so cool. Yeah, yes, I love the the cat effects are really fun. The piano, the vase mm-hmm. falling, the mm-hmm. camera work combined with the editing make it seem seamless. Like it is, mm-hmm. it is just so well shot and well choreographed and timed. It mm-hmm. is remarkable. Like in. When you're talking about like the horror genre, like an Invisible Man movie doesn't necessarily need to be a horror story, but mm-hmm. the idea of invisibility can conjure yeah. the idea of ghosts. It's, it's creepy. It's one it's of the reasons. It's one of the reasons why Lee Wannell's version of the Invisible Man yes. works so well is because yes. it's kind of treated as a ghost story. And it is. Uh, this is the same situation here, and yep. the terror on their faces is genuine. Yeah. It's like. Out of all the melodramatic elements in this film, that's the least melodramatic because it feels <laughs> genuine. Um, yeah. And the they see the invisible cat's paw prints, which that's another great little effect. I there. love that effect. I yeah, love that. Which effect. I don't yeah. know if they're using similar techniques to how they did the invisible man's footprints in the snow at the end of the f- original movie. But mm-hmm. I just liked watching it unfold that way. Yeah. Um, and that's when they go to the lab because the cat goes mm-hmm. back in there and they find right. that uh, uh, the, that the doctor has been kidnapped. Uh, or, well, they don't find out that he's been kidnapped, actually. They wonder where he is. Mm-hmm. And as the whole family is kind of like gathered around trying to figure out what's going on, including Seki and Kurokawa, they find a note saying that he has gone to work in solitude on the invisibility <laughs> syndrome, home in two or three days, don't call the cops, which that should be your first clue. Don't call the cops. Yes, means call the cops. Yeah. You know, he did that. they didn't have to put that in, right? They just could have said like, look, I need to just be by my own to get this fixed. Give me three days. I'm just going up to our country home. You know, it could have been done a lot more skillfully instead of immediately. The, Jap- the Japanese the equivalent of Muggsy from Looney Tunes wrote this yeah, note. Exactly. <laughs> hey, okay, uh, don't call the cops. What? <laughs> you idiot. <laughs> yep, uh, um, pretty much. And uh, so, yeah, Kawabe then arrives to engage phase two right. of, of his plot, which is while mm-hmm. they're lying around the living room discussing the experiment, uh, mm-hmm. Kawabe kind of alludes to Kurokawa going like, Kurokawa, the invisibility syndrome was based on your research, right? And Kurokawa right. goes, uh, yeah, excuse yeah. me one minute. And well, we they've s- already picked up on the fact there's this rivalry and insecurity yeah. among the protégés. So if I kind of feed the ego of this protégé, he's immediately just going to be in my hand. Right? Exactly. And, and so yeah. he he alludes to like, and that, but like, but he alludes to that, that that competition and Kirakawa kind of caves in and goes like 
he found this out on his own. I, this is not my research. I have no idea what I'm doing. I, I'm a fraud. And, uh, and But this, I think, is a good kind of plot twist number one. One of the good plot twists here is that it's not the professor that's becoming the Invisible Man. Spoilers, bro. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> professor's assistant, right? So this yes. is a really good twist because normally we would say, oh, yeah, he's going to make the professor become the Invisible Man and go do his bidding. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, there's another party involved here. And in fact, they hold that. They hold that revelation pretty yeah. well throughout the movie. In fact, I think yeah. it's not until the 50-minute mark where we find out that it's Kurokawa is the Invisible exactly. Man. So exactly. he encourages Kurokawa to like, look, tell them, tell the tell the family you're going to take a vacation. You take a couple of days and you go find them. And here's a wad of cashola here that you yep. can uh, hang out with. Uh, yep. And uh, Kurokawa goes to pack at his place, but then the like the uh, the uh, attendant at his uh, living quarters. Uh, lets him know that people are at the door saying that the professor's requesting his presence. So he gets mm -hmm. into a car. Mm -hmm. We don't know where he really goes. Mm -hmm. The next shot, ha the next shot in the film, literally has a black car dropping off the professor in quotes mm -hmm. at the jewelry store. Yes. That they'll get him later, and he goes into the jewelry store. Mm -hmm. I will say that the when he goes in, there's a POV shot that's only from one eye, and I don't know why that is. Uh, <laughs> It's a little strange. It still looks good. It looks very good, but yeah. it is only out of one eye. And I'm right. and I'm like, short of an eye patch, we have some questions here. Um, <laughs> so it is kind of just like ah, uh, they just didn't, they didn't, they they they. It's make, just easier and cheaper. I guess it's easier. Yeah, yeah. they go, uh, but the the Invisible Man dressed up in his bandages, goes to the manager of the jewelry store in his office upstairs or like in the back or whatever and mm -hmm. demands the tears of Amour. Uh, mm -hmm. They go like, well, we didn't buy it off of the couple because they wanted too much money. And he right. goes like, then open up your safe. Um, yep. And and he obviously refuses to do this. So the invisible man gets up and goes, all right, I'll show you. This is mandatory yes. in every one of these films. Bad and, things reveal scene. Yes. And uh, yes. the reveal scene basically is shot for shot of yes. when Claude Rains exactly. takes up his bandages. Correct. Yep. The, the I feel like almost every Invisible Man movie at this point has to do this because it's just it wouldn't be an Invisible Man movie. That, that is only the one thing that I will yeah. say about Lee Wannell's Invisible Man movie is it does not have him taking off bandages that way. It is a little disappointing, but I it's know. a great movie that has two yeah. Universal monsters in it. I will deal with yes. this. Yes. Um, but uh, yeah, he uh, he takes them off and he gets into a big old fight. Somebody bringing in a tray of food mm -hmm. screams out loud to the point mm -hmm. where the whole thing is botched and he goes i'll yep. be back and and that's the thing right even with the visibility you can get locked in and that's why he has to kind of go out a window or whatever yep. right but yep. like invisibility is limited in what it can achieve for you at times yes <laughs> yeah and it's it's his this invisible man learns how to be more clever in the beginning yes. he's a little bumbling and whatnot he is. and it's yes. clear that the madness has already started to take in because that's yep. something that comes up in a second the police mm -hmm. are on the scene. They get yep. they they find that Nakazudo's card was handed to the manager, so they are suspecting Nakazudo of the crime. But 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 it's kind of like, but why would they do that, right? If, yes. If it were, so it's kind of like evidence seems planted, right? It, exactly. Yeah. No. It's it's very clear. Even the shot selection indicates that this is all a plant. Yeah. Um, but because we don't have confirmation of who's who. 
unless mm-hmm. you're keen on voices, mm-hmm. you're going to assume, oh, yeah. it might be the professor. We don't know. Right. Exactly. I I did not make the distinction until I realized, well, if I listen to the same actors side by side, maybe I'd pretty much know that right away. And maybe the audience yeah. in Japan even knew right away. Again, I think it's also just the mobility, right? Like that old man is not jumping out that window. No, 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 no. He yeah. looks like Albert Einstein. He's not yeah, going to exactly. be jumping out of buildings. Exactly. And uh, they cut a, uh, they cut away, though, to a drunk guy walking around going like, yeah, yes. so very and good. I wonderful day. <laughs> it's a really nice touch of comedy because it's like only the drunk person wouldn't freak out at the side of the invisible man. <laughs> This drunk actor is really good because the, the invisible man demands his clothes. He goes, fuck yeah. you, buddy. Whatever. And uh, yeah. he strangles him. And yeah. it's not evident that he's strangling him. It's more just like his face distracts you from the uh, the reality that there's no pressure on his neck. And so it does look believable that he got strangled out. Um, mm-hmm. I think I attribute that to really good pantomime. And yes. so he gets the clothes off. This is the only shot in the film that looks the worst for wear on the whole. It is a sure. very hard shot to look at, but you do see the difference between the plates. And so like they're uh, like between the, the lighting is tough there, right? Cause they're almost yeah. trying to do like a noir scene in a tunnel. And I can imagine matching that. Being and, different. and it's, I don't know. it's no different than actually, if you watch star Trek, the motion picture, on a DVD copy where the effects plates clearly have a different film stock quality than right. the 35 millimeter. That's probably going through the main camera for your actors. So therefore mm-hmm. it just looks different. The difference yeah. being you can probably restore Star Trek, the motion pictures film stock to a more tolerable degree, but you probably can't do it with this one given the lack of uh, material to go off of. If they're only having a 16 millimeter millimeter print that limits you intensely. Um, but, uh, he gets the clothes off and he walks by a man who, because of the light, doesn't fully recognize that the guy is right. invisible. Then he takes off yep. his hat and confirms it. It's a very yep. good lighting shot. Very, it very is. well lit mm-hmm. shot. Um, mm-hmm. And then the this officer, after being scared, whistles for everybody. And that's when the newspapers start unfurling, going, mystery, invisible man in Kobe. Mystery of the century, the invisible man appears. <laughs> like, uh, And they all think it's the doc. The police come to investigate the lab and they question Seki uh, and they discover the doc's cool hidden sink door, which I'm like, yes, they even say it's cool in there because it is. Uh, they find his notebook and he goes like, well, I can't make Ned nor tale of this, except for this one sentence that says, should I die, I bequeath all rights of my findings to Ichiru Kawabe. And it's like, OK, this could be useful. Tears it out. He tears a page out of a book that is evidence. <laughs> Whoopsie. This is this isn't a cultural thing. This is a forties thing. Oh yep. well, well, I'm the cop. I know. Dumb cops. Right. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um. So just tear out evidence. Doesn't matter. Also fingerprints. BS. Um. Like he even like tries to go in there and the goes like ah 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 ah. Got to dust for prints first. <laughs> like <laughs> like you have to remind them what the hell. Uh. Mm-hmm. And uh. But they reiterate in the reading that of the book that the agent chemical. Uh, that would allow return to a visibility to a visibility does not exist. And also they throw in like, oh yeah, and the subject goes in mad within two to three days. <laughs> so there you go. So There's now tech- we have to deal yep. with crazy invisibility. Um, mm-hmm. So they go. So the invisible man goes back to the jewelry store. Manager is yep. describing it the incident to I think the owner. I don't know who this guy is. Um, but the invisible man then appears. No, just yep. it's just a cat. 
But oh no, he is in there right on time to deliver a nice little one-liner. Uh, and he th- uh, threatens the manager to keep it quiet when somebody else comes through the door. So he's like, no, 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 no. I learned my lesson before. There may be somebody at the door. <laughs> um, <laughs> and he gets him to the point where he goes like, all right, fine. I'll tell you. They're at the Sonayami, uh, Son- yep. Somia Hotel, room 26. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he goes in and terrorizes the couple. Mm-hmm. And there's a great sequence where he's attacking the man in that situation and a vase is thrown and it's clearly an animated vase. (laughs) (laughs) Very, very fun. I'm like, no, nobody told me there was Walt Disney cartoons stuck in this movie. That is amazing. Uh, And the, the hotel owner or the, 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 the people at the hotel, they, they, one of them gets out there and they flag down Ryuko Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's when the invisible man goes, Ryoko, I must leave. And he uh he disappears just right. as a frightening mob is about ready to strike and scares them before he goes away. And so, so that's perhaps if we were really watching closely, maybe that's a clue that helps us figure out who the invisible man is, right? The fact that he knows Ryuko, mm-hmm. cares about her. Because, yes, of course. Because it's not young. clear if Nikaza uh it's not it's not clear if uh of if uh, Nakazato yeah. knows Kurokawa's sister. Exactly. So they yeah. kind of actually, the film cleverly relies on the idea yes. that like, maybe there's information implied. Maybe. That's right. That's See, this is a thing. Like on a second watch, you would say, oh, they planted that there. On the first watch, you don't pick up on it. But on the second watch, you're like, yeah, they actually left some breadcrumbs here that indicates it's Kurokawa. It, and you could have figured it out if you had paid attention to it's it. It's the sixth sense of, yeah, of Japanese exactly. horror movies. Exactly. Yeah. No, and I give that credit, right? I hate it when movies kind of just don't do things correctly, right? They, they mm-hmm. assume something at the end that was never set up. They've yeah. actually set some of this up along the way. Yeah, yeah. They, 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 it was right there the whole time, and it exactly that is part of the kind of the beauty of the film too. Is that like it does entrance you, like you don't want to look away from the screen because not yeah. just because of the plot twist, but because it the content itself is engaging. It is yes, yes, it is pulpy B movie. Nonsense. Yes, it's definitely this is not Citizen Kane. No, it is a B movie. It is a sci-fi movie. But it's similar. But- to, it's similar to like what Adam Roach talked about on episode ninety-nine of Ballyhoo, which is just like there is something about those B movies that are just so entrancing. And- I think it's very charming. I think yeah. it's a really charming movie. Yeah, agreed. Mm-hmm. And so there is further headlines going city in fear, and my favorite one, which mm-hmm. is professor's discovery sold to devil, to which the devil said like, mm-hmm. no, 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 leave me out of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is my <laughs> issue. This is your issue. Deal with it um uh and then there is a professor kawabe or no president kawabe press conference where he yeah. pushes the whole line of like i don't think the professor would ever kill people but who knows mm-hmm. uh and we get Sek- uh, seki talking to michiko uh that they need to find who's responsible for it uh, tries to cheer her up, and that's when there's a the door opens, and they all jump because nobody's visible at first. And Kawabe comes in and goes, "It's only me. I'm not the invisible man." <laughs> which I'm which gonna... once again we might have thought, right? We might have thought, "Oh, well, maybe he kidnapped the professor and just took the serum himself." Yeah, that could have been something he did, right? Yeah. But now we're being told, actually, no. 
And out of context, I'm just going to walk into every store in my life now going, it's only me. I'm not an invisible man. It's only me. Because I I did write a note for after that line, which is, duh. (laughs) You are visible. Then there'll be that one time, Zach, that you are going to be invisible. Oh, that would be amazing if I walked in and and I am invisible, didn't even realize it. And somebody goes Mm -hmm. like, bullshit, you aren't. (laughs) Um, So... uh, he then talks about like, you know, I had a private eye following Kurokawa around um, uh, mm-hmm. and that apparently Kurokawa knew the identity of the Invisible Man and posed a threat to the kidnappers. Uh, mm-hmm. And also that he found out about the the bet to win Machiko, Machiko's yeah. hand. So yeah. Machiko leaves because she's just like, yeah. I'm kind of embarrassed by you, Kawabe, right now for bringing this bullshit up. Yeah. <laughs> and just goes. Uh, and Kawabe tells Saki to not be discouraged, says to just lay low. I'm on your side. Wink, wink. Know yep. what I mean? Nudge, nudge. Once again, stoking that jealousy, mm-hmm. right? So really, really, you know, Kawabe, like we said, is a great evil guy because he maintains the trust of the family till the end. Mm-hmm. He plays off these rivals very well. Yep. It's good. And, the, good and when he mentions the rivalry, by the way the blocking as i talked about with melodrama here is perfect because they both kind of turn their heads uh, and going like no <laughs> why'd you have to bring that up and yeah. my favorite piece of melodrama in this movie uh after they uh after after they have had that conversation and seki is left alone in the laboratory there is a cutaway <laughs> to michiko who, in her anguish, bangs her head on the piano. (laughs) And yes, I feel for her because she is caught in a love triangle that is also possibly seemingly set up by her father where she has no agency. But also it's just like, out of all the melodramatic things one can do, banging your head on the piano is a pretty good one. (laughs) And I think, too, we see here, right, that there are certain actors here that are stronger than others. Yes. you know, we we talked about the actress that's Yuko. I mean, she's got a very modern sensibility, you know, not only in the way she looks, but the way she acts, I think, is much more. She's not that as melodramatic. Yeah, not only that, she's willing to become a detective on the spot. So this is great, right? Like a woman with agency. How often are we seeing that, right? There's a woman with agency, and we'll see more of that coming up. But yeah, so she and and Seki are kind of like, hmm, something's Mm -hmm. going on here yes so she decides to become sherlock holmes in this whole uh, scenario um and she kind of comes up with the idea of a bait and switch uh because there's there are suspicions around kawabe like he's not he's not getting away with his ruse entirely there are active suspicions around him correct which from a plot standpoint don't help the mystery that they're trying to maintain (laughs) but but i mean i guess with a limited number of characters i mean yeah, yeah, it, it is kind of like it can, it, it works in this scenario, like it's fine, like it, it's the opposite of the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes syndrome, where it's like, well, we sure. already know Moriarty's plot, so it doesn't matter, it's like, no, but they are doing a good job at weaving in a, an actual mystery, because mm-hmm. even though we are given clues to Kurokawa being the Invisible Man, mm-hmm. there's no definitive confirmation until the scene coming up prior to that you could assume well maybe it's one of his fucking lackeys who knows exactly exactly but uh they do as they are uh planning this bait and switch they meet with kawabe show him the tears of amour and he goes off to call for having a check drawn up and that's when she pulls the switch with fake diamonds gets into a car with kawabe 
Yeah. And that's when their driver Ooh. stops and the invisible man in quotes quote unquote comes yes. and holds them up for the for the oh, tears of a more here's twist number two, right? Yes. So now an invisible man has appeared. Yes. Okay. And so they he gets the jewels, the car drives off. And then the bandages come off to reveal it's just one of Kawabe's henchmen. There you go. And so All that's right. when the actual Invisible Man appears in the laboratory, and it's mm-hmm. revealed to be Kurokawa. Dun dun right. dun. Yep. And he tells about how he was tricked by the professor to meet him, yep. and we get this whole flashback sequence. Yep. With. <laughs> so they first put a blindfold over Kurokawa in that car that he got into earlier to be like secrecy must be maintained. Yada yada. They take him to clearly an abandoned haunted house, yep. uh, like a, a perfect hideout for gangsters. Uh, and they have him only talk to the professor through the door because they are saying that he is being requested yes. by the professor to potentially right. test. Yes. He's being manipulated. He's being manipulated into taking mm-hmm. the serum. And right. I love how he's talking to him at the door and it's, and the language is yes, please exactly. hurry. There's not much it's like time. A, it's like a, Hey, it's a Three's Companies episode. It is? Okay? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what's happening. I kind of want Don Nuts to jump through the door yeah. in the middle of this movie going like, what are you doing? Exactly. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, <laughs> and so he uh, uh, he takes the serum, goes mad, and they go like, well, we'll the professor says he'll give you the agent if you do him a favor. Exactly. Kira- so now we see the setup. Kurokawa, though, is kind of yeah. dumb here. Yep. Because... He has known this professor most of his life or his I know. professional it's life. It's kind of unbelievable, right? I think you were just believing that, you know, his his kind of competition with Seki is just so strong that he's kind of blinded by it. That's kind of what I had to believe to and, kind of make that believable. But you're totally right. Like he should know the professor's character. He should know how the professor operates. The question you know. should be, why does the professor want diamonds? Yeah. <laughs> what does that do? What does that yeah. help? He's perfectly well funded. Like what does he need? Yeah. Um he um, so they uh they cut away to the fake invisible man being apprehended by police mm-hmm. who are taking yep. him in, and then an yep. invisible knife or a knife is thrown by an invisible force, hits him in the back. Yep. Yep. Kirakawa Kirakura snatches the tears and runs off with them to deliver them to Kawabe, and yep. Kawabe declares them fakes, and yep. that drives Kurakawa into even more of a desperate mode. Um yep. oh, and before that I should say before Kurokawa leaves to go get the diamonds, yeah, he is still in the room when Michiko re-enters the room and she talks right. about like, so you know that competition. I'm, yes. I'm glad it's over yes. because you're yes, the one yes, I want, yes, Seki. Yes. And Seki's yeah. gonna and it's like Ixnay yeah. on the shut up. There's an invisible man in the room. <laughs> like, she, <laughs> and that's when he, that's when uh, Kurokawa throws a vial yes. on the ground and goes, yes. you fucking assholes. <laughs> Yep. Gets, gets out, out the, the window. window. And that, that just adds to his anger. Yeah, right? he so even he's says the phrase. Pro- he's he... got a lot of problems, right? He feels betrayed by his professor. Yeah. He's got his his love interest confessing love for his rival. And now he's got to go steal this necklace from his sister. So he's got mm-hmm. a lot of problems. Yes, he is He is having a very terrible, horrible, not very good day, him and Bob Iger. <laughs> and yeah. um, <laughs> now, they, he so he goes to do that whole thing. They, they're a fake. He's going to now yep. get them at any cost. Ryoko shows off the real tears of Amor at the yep. Nakazuta reference uh, residence to Kawabe. And Kawabe vows to, to still buy them from Machiko. And yep. he instigates a plan to take Machiko 
to yeah. his villa in Suma yeah. where the invisible so man will steal. Now he's kind of like, them. okay, this guy's an a uh, fuck up. I got to do this myself. If you want something done right, do it yourself. Exactly. Exactly. Never send never send an invisible man to do a visible man's job. Um, yep. and so And this is where we get some really fun stuff, right? Because yeah. now we have multiple invisible men rushing to the villa. Yes. And so it is he gets her up to the villa and then not more than uh, a, a shot later, Seki goes like, I have reason to believe that Kawabe is planning to steal the diamonds by taking Michiko up to his villa yeah. in yeah. Suma. And it's like, okay, yeah. well, we, we solved that mystery pretty quick. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Kurokawa overhears this and sees this yeah. as his chance to get the diamonds right. so that he can get this, the reversible agent. Yeah. So he knocks out a motorcycle policeman. Yeah. Steals the motorcycle <laughs> and we get an invisible man motorcycle chase. Now it, was awesome. it has been a while since I've watched Invisible Man sequels from Universal, but I I would bet you dollars to donuts that I do not remember them ever having an invisible motorcycle sequence. And this is incredible. I it, it is very well shot. Every nook and cranny is well hidden to give off the illusion correctly. Subaraya is killing it with this sequence it is super well shot uh and i i am genuinely impressed by how f- real it feels because it's connoting speed it reminded me of a william wyler or, or of a william wellman sequence in like the public enemy or or one of his other gangster films where it's just like a big old car chase that connotes a lot of speed and action it's very mm-hmm. very well put together yeah i and, thought it was excellent and we yeah. get plot twist number three, mm-hmm. which is basically now there are two invisible men, yes. right? Uh, and so we are trying to figure out what's going on because now we've been, we kind of know that Kurokawa is going there invisibly. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, twist number three, now Ryoko's impersonating an invisible man as well. Yes. Right? And gets there first mm-hmm. and actually goes to the professor first, right? So goes down to the professor tries to free the professor. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the second invisible man, Kurokawa, gets there and sees what Kawabe is doing and what Kawabe's ultimate goal was. Yes, and that's also when Ryuko uh, finds the professor Yes, and finds out that her brother is the invisible man. Correct. Uh, to which there is great sorrow. And mm-hmm. the climax, of the, the the whole like resolution of this is that he mm-hmm. does get the diamonds. To right. So Kawabe. he gets. The, so yeah. well, okay. So Kurakawa then sees Kawabe assaulting his love interest, uh, gets the necklace. Seki arrives then and rescues the girl. Kurakawa gives the jewels to Kawabe for the antidote, but is basically told there is none. Yes. Which is at the point then that the police arrive, mm-hmm. and then when the police arrive. Kurokawa kills Kawabe. Yeah. Uh, and then there's shootout with the police. And then Kurokawa eventually, you know, literally walks into the ocean basically <laughs> and dies. And I really liked that scene. Yeah. I thought it was a German expressionist moment. Yeah. Of Kurokawa drowned, essentially becoming visible again. I thought that was wonderful. In the grand scheme of Invisible Man needs to die or be wounded for the visibility to come back, because that's what happens in the Invisible Man Returns. Um, It is so, so overly dramatic and like operatic 
Just beautiful. And I it's, thought it was a beautiful and, shot. And it's compl- yeah. and it's complimented by Ryuku going, he didn't even see my show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't see my he, show. He never and got to see my review, my yesteryear Ballyhoo review. <laughs> no. And the professor eventually accepts responsibility for unleashing this evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Back to our if it gone for one more second, he might have actually committed suicide on screen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Given the melodrama going on. And, um, but that's the end of this film. Yeah. We do have another film to talk about, but it is not as... It's not, it doesn't have the charm. It doesn't... lacks the charm of this first film. I will call out, I think, I don't think we need to walk through all of it. I'll call no. out two things. No, two yeah. things kind of kind of stood out for me in this film. One is how Japan has developed in this time. Yeah. Right? So the second film is in Tokyo. You see there's a lot more, you know, it's getting built up. There are more skyscrapers. There are lots of shots of trains. And, and it's the it's you know, the invisible man versus the human fly that we're on right now, by the way, for that's the right. audience. That, yes. yes. Good. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying. Yes. Yeah. So I think the kind of the the development in Japan, I think, is really interesting to see. I think a second thing that was interesting for me is just that this is now going the way of the Godzilla series in that in this one, the Invisible Man is kind of good, question mark? Well, no? which one? <laughs> There's multiple ones. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not just two, but more of them. <laughs> Yes, and there are the, lots of them. And we do get a little more of the description of the technology. I mean, not really a clear description. It it's make a, a ray of sense. some kind that renders you invisible. However, through some means, they can also make themselves partially visible because of yeah. how they were. They yeah, were, but they don't need the whole lab to become visible again. I don't know. It doesn't make a lot of sense. No, it point. doesn't, but it provides yeah. great uh, reveal sequences. The big reveal sequence of invisibility because they are like, there is a constant dilemma through a good chunk of the first part of that movie where they're like, well, do we even use this on man? We don't know. We don't know the consequences. And it's fine because they're, the the whole, the main thrust of that plot has to do with a with a series of murders being committed by seemingly an invisible force. The police even think it's an invisible man to which the scientists who are developing invisibility technology go like, we've never used it and never will. And Mm -hmm. it's actually revealed that it is actually a human fly. The human fly origin story is far more interesting, I think, than the invisible man origin because the invisible, the human fly element has to do with a serum that is taken that was developed by people who were Sent war out to criminals. war criminals, yeah. <laughs> sent out on the outskirts, and the human fly who is committing the murders is basically an addict, not too dissimilar from the uh, yeah. the addiction to power that an invisible man would have, or maybe a Doctor mm-hmm. Jekyll and Mister Hyde kind of thing. Yes, yes, uh, he's definitely psychologically affected. Yeah, I think. I mean, the fact that you know we're not that far away from the war. And that we have a protagonist who is a convicted war criminal who is jealous yeah. of the other buddies in the lab because they were not convicted of war crimes. Yeah. I, that's convincing, right? Yeah, it's actually and it's a very good it's a very good thrust of the plot. I think that the 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 there's two films going on here. One is yes. a human fly murder revenge drama, and the yes. other one is a Marvel movie. <laughs> yes, exactly. I agree with you. And I feel like if they could have gone into that kind of war criminal revenge plot more yeah it would have been a better movie yeah but this 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 stuffing in of superheroes essentially in the process and that that's not my idea that's kim newman's assertion which when i finally watched the film i'm like he's right this is kind of like a freaking mcu movie before the mcu happened because they're trying to set up a whole family of invisible men and women they do not they this is not 
strictly a sequel to The Invisible Man Appears. It's not. It's not. It's just IP recycling. And we do, of course, get the famous train derailment here that we didn't get in the first one. Yes, yes. You know, kind of homage to the first 33 film. Pretty good one. He kills 960 people. Probably not as much as The Invisible Man did in the 30s. Well, that's the thing, right? Ultimately, The Invisible Man films kill a lot more people than any of the other universes. Oh, yeah. It's super easy because you don't have to see the four. Like, there's uh, Jason Voorhees, if he were invisible, he would have already beaten this record by now. But that's the problem. He's not invisible. Um, And uh, But there is a... There is a part of this film that I want to talk about, which is, so we talked about the Invisible Man effects, but I will point out with the Invisible Man effects, the cool part is that you're watching like partial parts of the body kind of floating around like a head, eating a banana as a result of that because he needs energy. Um, I like that one. uh, But the other one is the human fly effect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This effect is 75% amazing. It's shrinking man. It's right. It's an invisible yes. shrinking man effect. Right? Yes. Yeah. It, the difference, mm-hmm. though, is is that when you think of a human fly, you do tend to think of the fly, which is well. So here's the thing, right? Yeah. I get the shrinking part. Why does he fly? Yeah, that's unclear. <laughs> Have, if anybody's watched a Neil Breen movie or watched clips of a Neil Breen movie on YouTube, you've seen those effects where he's literally like dragging and uh, dragging a figure of himself frozen up a stairway or something and then proceeding with the next shot so that it looks like he has jumping abilities. It's very similar to this. <laughs> uh, but the difference is Neil Breen's technology is not as sophisticated as Dia Films technology and Subaraya's technology. Uh, yeah, because there, there are actually very intriguing moments where they shrink down and like people mm-hmm. understand, okay, this is the human fly now. He's created the murderer. Yep. So we're going to yep. blow out a fan, but then he escapes out another vent and they go, damn mm-hmm. it, he got away again. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I think some of those are very well done. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the big thing though is also this human fly has an overt ac- obsession with the nightclub singer. Yeah. Uh, and it leads to a very provocative looking sequence for the era that I thought, yes. which yes. is him, uh, uh, yes. uh, as a human fly walking on, on her, her. Yeah, yeah, it is very yeah. like there's a there's a yeah. there's a tinge of like naughtiness going it's on gross. in this movie. It's yeah. gross. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty ick. Um, yep. He does kill her though because she clearly betrayed him for what I don't know. Like, yeah, I know. There's he, a lo- he's not well. I mean, this guy is a psychopath. Tokyo Drifter's plot is far more nuanced and detailed by comparison to <laughs> the Invisible Man versus the Human Fly. I don't think anybody. It really does that. feel like two things just stuck together, and they would have been better off just making them separate films. Yeah, it, it, I I will say though that. I didn't give it as high a review as Invisible Man appears, and if anything, as no. I told you earlier today, I think the Invisible Man appears is getting a. a it's bump not. Up if to you had stars. time to watch only one of these, watch the first one. Absolutely, I, I agree. Although, I will say, if you are intrigued and just want to watch special effects, be special effects. Invisible Man versus the Human Fly does deliver the goods. It does deliver the goods. Uh, I actually think that the press conference sequence at the end of the movie where the invisible <laughs> the invisible uh, yep. uh, woman is yep. proclaimed the hero, yep. that's a fun sequence. That's a very fun, well-shot sequence. 
Yep. Uh, where the press is just like, she's gone. <laughs> and and yeah, and we see now, you know, we're a little more modern now. So the professor's daughter actually has some agency and is able to do things herself, which is cool. Well, she has to I be. Mean, she's, she's basically she's Sue in. Storm. And they're going to yeah, form the Fantastic right. Four of Invisible oh, People. No. Stop, 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 stop. <laughs> but yeah, I, look, there are tinges in it that are worth watching. And the great thing about these films is they're pretty short. They're, you know, they're they're easy to get through. Definitely lacks the charm of the first one, but I do think they're interesting things about it. Right. Now yeah. the the uh the there is a I, in wrapping up with this I th- I think the question becomes since this did not come into the US's purview until as early as 2001 I don't think we really can talk about how it influences American culture other than that right. collective unconscious that we've talked about. Yeah, I see similarity in themes, but you can't call them influences. Yeah, but, I think the influences, this allows Suburaya to get better at his uh, practical effects and his trick shot techniques. Mm-hmm. And then those roll into Kaiju, which then becomes, of course, its own thing. Which right. Is incredibly influential to this day. I think, But I think it is very... It's it's weird because this film takes it, it almost if you look at the trajectory of how Japanese films unfold, they kind of go in reverse. The Invisible Man in the U.S. carries strong ideas um, mm-hmm. that allude to the rise of fascism in mm-hmm. Europe um, yep. that whether intentional or not are there. Yes. Um, just through Claude Rains' performance and the dialogue. Agreed. The psychopathy, right? Yes. Psychopathy of what would you do if you could get away with it kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. But then as the films digress, they yeah. become more about the well, idea police of- Police invis- procedurals. Yeah, they're more police procedurals. Yeah, right? or in the case yeah. of The Invisible Woman, sex comedy. Uh, right. The, which also has a crime th- plot in it, so I guess it's all connected through crime anyway. But yeah. they lose- they lose political allegory or societal allegory in the process. Japanese sci-fi horror and to an extent just horror overall seems to start off with the, the trick itself and then grow into, into allegory because Mm -hmm. whether or not the invisible man versus the human fly is as good as the invisible man appears, it does carry with it, ideas surrounding the military history and the war criminal aspect exactly that's why i mean i i wish there'd been more of a movie on that human fly i think that's fascinating right like all these terrible sadistic scientists in an island one of them gets convicted of war crimes the others don't for some reason uh well we we can probably guess some of the reasons. Uh, I I'm gonna say that this links a little bit. If you want the real world analogy, there's a unit seven three one that existed in Japan. It's terrible. You can read about it. They did very sadistic procedures on live victims. Mm-hmm. Horrible things they did. Very similar to what you hear about, you know, like Mengele and all those folks. That's what they were doing. And unfortunately, a lot of those people got hired by the U.S. to come work in our labs here. Right? Yes. Uh, hey, they were good at developing chemical weapons. We need some chemical and biological weapons. Come here and work for us. And I am guessing that's what's being alluded to there, that he was convicted of the war crimes and the others weren't because they were probably recruited by the U.S. and the Soviets. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, and, th- and that idea, this idea that they expound upon here in 1957 comes three years after Gojira. Mm-hmm. So Invisible Man appears, walks with the technology so that Gojira can run. Exactly. Because now Subaraya because he's innovate, he, he he comes to innovate the pseudomation aspect. Yep. Yep. 
and apply other tricks that make Gojira as innovative as it is. Correct. There is a progression of like, okay, but how do we make the story special? The U.S. occupation has ended. We can now talk about things like the Lucky Dragon incident and how right. the exactly. uh, the atomic forces of right. of the U.S. powers have in fact in, impacted our culture. Uh, and actually, and I kind of went down a kaiju rabbit hole in tandem with preparing for this. Yeah. Uh, and part of that was watching Gajira and Gajira Raids Raids again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I was far more tuned in to the nuances of how society is reacting to Gojira's presence, yeah, rather than just the suit, the the action mm-hmm. sequences, yeah. And and I start seeing how the the main idea is laid out in Gojira, but then Godzilla raids again, kind of alludes to the smaller details of like evacuation and emergency mm-hmm. broadcast systems and mm-hmm. still alluding it well, to the, I mean, this bastard child of the atomic age, you know? Yeah. I mean, and, and also in Godzilla, right? Like the, the woman and her daughter were like, well, we can go be with our, our dad soon, you know, presumably someone who was killed in the war. Right. Right. There's a lot of poignancy in Godzilla, which is why I think we all love it to this day, because it's a lot more than just a man in a suit. But I, th- and I think that the, the fact that we now have this full, available in the states allows film history to rewrite itself where kaiju film doesn't just come out of nowhere there are stepping stones to it and i think this is right this this kind of triptych we're doing because you know not to spoil anything but we're planning to do mothra next in our series oh yeah. yeah so mothra is kind of you know you see where ag suburaya starts with page of madness and then you see where he gets to with invisible man appears and then we see him in full flourishing uh, when we get to Mothra. Yeah, which I think that like, and and these stepping stones even to Invisible Man very much begin with with handling these special effects techniques in dramas, uh, in war films, um, as evidenced by the war at sea from Hawaii to Malaya, yep. that, yep. which is the Pearl Harbor film that caused all of the, mm-hmm. of the fuss. I find mm-hmm. it interesting to discuss how horror has benefited from drama in the past, or mm-hmm. ideas of drama, because the formation of the horror genre as a solidified label, there's an argument to say that Dracula is the one that first carries the label, or at least Frankenstein. But there's mm-hmm. so much stepping stone material that's f- that's yes. formed in the form of deformed imagery amidst melodrama, whether that yeah. be the man who laughs or the Phantom of the Opera. Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Yes. You know, there's a lot of stuff that comes before. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And in, and in this case, it has arguably more to do with the technology itself seeping its way through different stories that tell different, that utilize the technology differently. And it's no different than talking about Citizen Kane and realizing it has just as much, if not more special effects than maybe Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And you see how that love of special effects carries itself into the genres that would most benefit from it. Um, And I, I, I feel like the invisible man appears in the invisible man versus the human fly, but more so appears. I think that the benefit of these films has been to watch the progress of a genre developing. Exactly. And I feel like because the film is now available, it is far easier to understand how Subaraya comes to the point where Gajira comes out as innovative as it looks. Exactly. I completely agree with you because prior to movies like this being available, I think the narrative was more that, oh, folks saw... um, 
what's the one, the beast from 20,000 Fathoms or whatever, the one where like the Gojira, like the American yes. film, right? With the yes. Gojira-like character Ray in Harryhausen. New York. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's all about Harryhausen. But I think we can make the argument that Suburaya is doing all of that in parallel. And while I'm not, you know, I don't want to say that Harryhausen wasn't an influence. They also had their own native development in this area happening before Gojira. Yeah, and it's actually uh, uh, the the Gojira commentary pointed to the fact that actually Harryhausen felt robbed or um, yes. or stolen from when it came to yes. Beasts of Twenty Thousand Phantoms versus Gojira, yeah. even yeah. though it's clearly not the case. Right. Uh, and it, and I think I think if anything, it's King Kong that yeah. they rip yeah, off more than true. more than most because as, or maybe a more inspiration. Yeah, yeah. well, and yeah. it's it's very much like as the as the commentary pointed out, and it's a very strong idea. Is Superia saw King Kong mm-hmm. and wanted to do it, right? And the very fact that stop motion photography, being the laborious process that it is, may not allow for time or budget that is acquired in the Japanese film industry, they have to go with the pseudomation. The, the what they do in the first Gojira most prominently is that they work not to so much hide the suit, but hide how much of it you can see. And yes. there's a noir element that attaches yes. itself to Gojira exactly. in that respect. Yes. By the time you get to Godzilla Raids again, now you're seeing the suit. It's it's very well lit. You can see that it's rubber. You can see that there's an actor inside just by movement and the the limited uh, ability of the of Gojira to open and close his mouth. Uh, I think that what you're also what we're also seeing there, right, is the transition between films that were made for adults with, you know, heavy themes involved mm-hmm. and then gradually right Godzilla becoming a kids movie yeah right? which actually I think- which actually it, it reminds me of these things of just like the monsters aren't fully part of these stories their first go around which nowadays makes me question the way people review Godzilla movies that are made today where I'm like well, the, the right. monster wasn't in the majority of the first one, so why would you expect yes. there to be more than 20 minutes or more than 40 minutes of Godzilla in this remake? They're trying to homage the movie, um, right. which is why, you know, Gareth Edwards' version is not a bad adaptation. It's not as strong, but it's it's there. It does its job. Mm. Um, and, <laughs> and that comes with, from my mind, the caveat of like, okay, so the the... What he does, Subaraya, in homaging Fulton's technology, it allows people to recognize that anybody can take and adapt technology from a different country and reutilize it for our purposes. We mm-hmm. tend to do that with a lot of film tropes, yeah. like mm-hmm. expressionism, and that we yep. we benefit from. Yeah, Immig- montage and all that from Russia. You know, there's a lot. Yeah, this is a world language. Yeah, right? and we Lots benefit from immigration. We benefit from yes. immigration in that respect yes. because of the immigrants that come to America to escape the harsh conditions of Europe, whether in the 1800s or the 1900s and the 1930s. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, Japan, in turn, has immigration in the form of ideas yes. through the film prints themselves. Mm-hmm. And instead of having the manual, they have to go off of only what they're seeing and try to come up with the solution, which in a way makes them far more applaudable than even yes. anybody in America because they have to figure this out from scratch. They yes. do not have Willis O'Brien's diary that explains the process bit by bit. And that's yeah, what it, you know, it's a really good point, Zach. And, and that continues to be the way a lot of historical innovation happened in Japan. I'll give you a quick 
quick funny story. Yeah. At some point, Japanese decided they wanted to brew their own beer. So in the U.S., of course, beer brewing became a thing because, as you said, we had lots of immigrants coming from Czechoslovakia or whatever it was called at the time, the, the Czech area uh, and Germany and, you know, lots of, the, I guess, Bohemia, <laughs> Bohemia. Let's call it Bohemia. Bohemia, Germany, lots of folks coming over who knew how to make beer. They made beer here. Right. And mm. the Japanese were like, OK, so first they looked at a map. And they were kind of like, okay, well, Milwaukee's at this latitude and Munich is at this latitude. What's the same latitude we have in Japan? Okay, Sapporo, that's going to be our beer place, right? Yeah. So they kind of decided that. And then, yeah, like you said, they're kind of reverse engineering based on what they see that's mm -hmm. available. Yeah. Without necessarily having people from those countries that develop those innovations to come over and do it directly. Yeah. And then yet in the same point, as we talked about with a page of madness, there's a lot of things that they may lift idealistically from other films that they can see and know that the effect is achievable, but they also innovate timing Absolutely. of it, how Absolutely. it's presented. They Absolutely. also define what is a horrific image or a terrifying mm -hmm. image. The kabuki mm -hmm. masks and... Um, uh, yeah, the no masks. Yeah, yeah. the no masks in yeah. Page of Madness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those things... Super creepy. <laughs> the, but those things... And that, that lays a tone for something that will be considered scary and terrifying across yes. all countries and boundaries, yes. even though there's a cultural context behind it, yes. there's no f denying that a page of madness is using that in horrific imagery for yep. a, a specific purpose. Mm -hmm. And I think that the invisible man element of this, like with, with what they take from America is they take the madness mm -hmm. and work the technology from there. If anything, the only thing that I would want is for a more elaborate, uh, deep dive from Subaraya on, okay, how did he learn the process? I, it's almost like I would want a diary from Subaraya to just be like, this is how I discovered <laughs> what Fulton was ideal. doing. <laughs> yes. I think it's very safe to say, though, I think that maybe the Invisible Man special effects photography was a far more transparent situation than the King Kong one because mm -hmm. he does eventually find out how King Kong is done. He, mm -hmm. he's, he, he does figure it out it just becomes a cost factor for Gojira to not do stop motion. Uh, yeah. But the Invisible Man one, the, the John Fulton one, they were using optical printing in Japan mm -hmm. even before mm -hmm. Subaru got of there. Course. This wasn't yeah, an I mean, unknown saw, science. Yeah. I mean, we pretty much, we saw some of that in Page of Madness. They, you know, they're double exposures and all kinds of things happening in there. So yeah, this is yeah. all, a lot of this is the collective unconscious yes. translating itself across waters. Mm -hmm. and, yes. and so like, I think like the the final wrap up on this film in particular is that like even more so than a page of madness, that collective unconsciousness extends into this idea of the same idea capturing our imagination. The key yes. difference is that they do have a lot of films in which to draw off of. But instead of just drawing off of the technology, they're also drawing off of story. And I think what's very interesting mm -hmm. about international cinema as opposed to what we do, which is occasionally we see a international title and then we try to mm -hmm. do a flat out English remake of it. Thankfully, mm -hmm. nobody's done that with Parasite and I hope nobody does that with Parasite. Uh, um, please, but, no. Yeah, but, um, but like uh, uh, there's other films that have done this from de various different countries. A Man Called Otto, which came out, uh, yeah, that I is know. literally I, A Man Called Oove. Um, so I hate those remake things. It's I don't watch them as a matter of principle. Fair please. enough. I, I understand. Like, like I, I can read subtitles. It's not that hard. Yeah, no, it's not. It's easy, guys. Just learn to read. But the but what I love about 
international cinema drawing from American influence is how they bring their own cultural identity yeah, to it in exactly. the process. Yes. And in some ways making it stronger. The best yes. example is Westerns come out, Sergio Leone sees them and says, well, here's my version of a Western. And then that in turn ends up influencing the genre of Westerns back or where the origin even came better, from. Yeah. Westerns come out, Kurosawa sees them, then Leone sees Kurosawa. Yes. Oh, yes. You know, yes. From, thing, from right? Western to Samurai so, to yeah, Western Samurai. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Japanese have a very good tradition of taking things from abroad and making them better. I mean, automotive production would be the first one to talk about, yeah. right? Taking Ford and all the stuff that we learned here in the U.S. and then turning it into things like the Toyota production system, which is still taught in business schools and, and uh, technology centers today. Yes. So I, I think that the there's a beautiful sentiment in the idea that a cultural exchange is a key asset in yes. film and in mm -hmm. life in general, but most, but specifically in film in here, it has allowed for, it, it has allowed whether intentionally or unintentionally to influence the kind of culture that, or the kind of pop culture that we ingested throughout the 60s, 70s and 80s, even up to today, while the invisible man appears in invisible man versus the human fly are not seen until very, very much later in the game, you can see that the ideas transcend waters. You can mm -hmm. see that these things have a connective tissue and a sibling, a sibling aesthetic when it comes yes. to comparing one invisible man next to the other. As long as you can see those men, you can, you can draw a way to compare and contrast the two. Um, mm -hmm. So that, that concludes a very, very, wonderful discussion here about the invisible man appears now Rashmi what are we going to talk about next time what are we going to what are we going to talk about what wait, what where else can we go we've already talked about invisible man i think that 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 pretty much covers the horror genre entirely right <laughs> Chico, we're going to Motura. Ooh. We're going to see Motura. I'm yes. a lady. we got to have some lady representation. We're going to have a lady kaiju. It's going to be awesome. Yes. Ishiro Honda's Mothra from 1961, featuring the glorious work of Subaraya involved in the mix. Uh, and uh, really, the only kaiju entry that we're going to be truly tackling, because there's plenty of kaiju discussions out there, guys. There's an entire kaiju cast that you can go back to and listen, which, by the way, it does no longer produce new episodes. But big shout out to the creator of Kaiju Cast for having an interview with August Ragoni, which really provide clarity for Subaraya's contribution to the entire special effects industry in Japan. Um, and, and, and we're going to be, after Mothra, I believe we're going to be trending into a little bit more of an atmospheric aesthetic. Well, um, yeah, actually, a couple of sci-fi films that I think will be fun to cover, um, and we may need to discuss the ordering that we do them in. One's going to be very campy. One's going to be very highbrow. Both really interesting. Wonderful. This is all coming to you and so much more as we continue this deep dive into Japanese uh, horror and its history throughout time. But uh, that's going to wrap it up for this episode of our, yes, as of yet, untitled Japanese horror <laughs> uh, presentation. But you can find out more about us on the back half of this program about where to find more YBR Presents. Uh, dig back to our previous discussions. We've got Alfred Hitchcock talk. We've got Jacques Tati talk. And very soon, uh, like within the next year or so, once we've wrapped up Marx Brothers discussions, those will be added to that feed down the line. So you'll have some collective uh, discussion points to talk about 
about. But I encourage you, if you haven't listened to our Page of Madness discussion, go back to that because it does have connective tissue to what we just talked about today and will have, I'm sure, ramifications down the line as we continue this discussion into Japanese horror. But Rashmi, thank you so much again uh, for coming down on this journey with me. This has been awesome, and I can't wait to keep going down this rabbit hole. So fun to be here. Thank you, Zach. Wonderful. And until all that, and until next time, folks, good night. And remember, don't worry, I'm not the Invisible Man. Bye.